It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, Majid Nawaz shares his remarkable journey from Islamist extremism to liberal democratic values. Nawaz is a British-born Muslim who became a radical Islamist as a teenager. After a decade with the global Islamist party Hezbollah Tahrir, he was arrested and sent to prison in Egypt. When he emerged four years later, he renounced his former views and set out to counter Islamist ideology. Today, he leads Quilliam, a think tank focusing on counter-extremism, citizenship, identity, and religious freedom. His book, Radical, My Journey Out of Islamist Extremism, is a harrowing tale of violence, imprisonment, torture, and transformation. Here's Majid Nawaz. What I'd like to do is begin with a short reading from my book, and then have a brief discussion, uh, have a brief uh, a presentation as to how I, my journey and how I ended up to do what I do now. And then I welcome all of you to ask uh, me questions and make comments and, and reflections upon what I've said. <clears throat> uh, this is my book. It's, on, it's, it's, a, it's an e-version. <clears throat> I'm going to read uh, a couple of pages only from chapter 20. The chapter is entitled... Assalamu alaikum, you have just come out of hell. To be asked to voluntarily walk towards your own torture is the cruelest of expectations. Why can't they just carry me? Each step is a personal betrayal. My body is convulsing in revulsion against my commands. Every instinct is screaming at me to turn the other way. But I am expected to walk on. Try standing in the middle of a highway, watching an oncoming bus without flinching. That's hard. Now try voluntarily walking towards that bus instead of stepping out of the way. That's impossible. My legs are buckling under each step, but I force compliance and walk on. Guard, your chaperoning hand that helps me walk blindly to my own torture feels perversely merciful. For how could I avoid stepping on my brothers in the corridor were it not for you? Alas, without sight, I cannot help but feel so disgustingly dependent on you. Now it is hard to breathe. Fighting to stay hidden away deep within me, even my breath fears coming out to face my torturer. My heart is attempting to escape the cage that is my chest, and my mind is beginning to shut down. I'm in shock. Oh Allah, I need you right now. If any mercy I've ever shown to anyone has amounted to any value in your esteem, then send me your angels now to shield me from these monsters. I'm trying to be brave for you, my Lord, but the truth is, I am scared. Help me, my Lord, for I am very scared. The question that I open with is how does somebody born and raised in the United Kingdom, in a place called Essex, a bit like your Jersey in New York, um, end up in a situation like that in 2002 in the torture dungeons of Egypt's state security headquarters. And what is the story behind that journey? Now, often people ask about the causes of radicalization. 
because they seek insights into how we can prevent others from becoming radicalized. All I have is my own personal story. One thing I do know is that human beings are not like water. We don't all freeze at zero degrees Celsius and we don't all boil at 100 degrees Celsius. We react to situations in different ways. So the only answer I have to that question as to how somebody like me, born and raised in the United Kingdom, with a law degree, an Arabic degree, and a master's from the London School of Economics in political theory, could have ended up in that situation, the only answer I have is my own personal story. And that starts in Essex in the early 90s. As a 14, 15-year-old young British-Pakistani boy, I found myself being hounded and chased by a group of neo-Nazi skinheads known as Combat 18. Now, they engaged in what they considered was a sport. They would ride around in the back of these white vans. They labeled this sport packy bashing. And they would go around and target random unsuspecting people of color who happened to be walking by on the street. They would pull up in this van and they would jump out of the back from this van carrying machetes and hammers and screwdrivers and pounce upon this unsuspecting uh, random passerby because of the color of his skin. By the age of 15, I had witnessed three or four of my friends stabbed before my eyes. In fact, on one occasion, I was forcibly held back as they forced me to watch my friend stabbed. He was a white English friend of mine, and they forced me to watch him stabbed because they considered him to be a blood traitor for having associated with me. Now, these were in the bad old days of racism before things changed, before the McPherson inquiry, which was an official government inquiry, into the murder of one young man who was killed in a similar way, Stephen Lawrence, because of the color of his skin. The government officially concluded that the police forces across the UK were, I quote, institutionally racist. And that inquiry, uh, it began a culture shift throughout the UK around questions of race. And things are not that bad anymore. I have to recognize the improvement. But back in those days in the early 90s, this was a very normal thing for us to have experienced. Coupled with the attacks on the street, the Essex police forces were riddled, indeed, with institutional racism. And before that re report was published by many years, I had experienced that myself. So again, by the age of 15, I'd been arrested falsely at gunpoint by the police for suspicion of armed robbery because my older brother at the time was playing in the park with a plastic gun with other boys. And they considered that these young 15, 16-year-old boys playing with this plastic gun, as young teenagers used to do, in the days in the UK, before terrorism was associated uh, with Muslims, in fact, it was associated with the Irish, but they decided these young boys must be about to rob a bank. Now, coupled with that disenfranchisement and disillusionment internally, domestically, within the UK, something else unfolded on a, on a far worse scale within our own continent. And I often say, uh, here in the United States, imagine a genocide unfolding on the West Coast when you're on the East Coast, and the psychological impact that would have on the nation. So across the continent in Bosnia, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Muslims were subjected to a genocide by the Serbs. And that was, in fact, the first time I ever realized my identity was indeed that I was being identified by others as a Muslim. I'd never considered myself one. I was raised in a very liberal and agnostic way. But this was an awakening of consciousness. And I took the view, as you heard, being into American hip-hop at the time, that defiance was better than compliance. So I began self-identifying as a Muslim to stick two fingers up, or perhaps here in the States you say one finger up, at, the, at the, those who were behind the genocide. But really, that was the beginning of my journey. Because at that crucial moment came along somebody who I had trusted, somebody who was from my hometown, somebody who had gone to Bart's Medical College, who therefore I respected in his academic abilities, 
And that somebody had come back on his holidays from college and began joining the dots for me in what I now call the ideological Islamist narrative. His argument was that it's not just here on the streets of Essex that you're being targeted, and it's not just because of your skin color. If you look to Bosnia where white Muslims are being targeted, if you look to Chechnya, if you look to Palestine, and the list went on, and he joined the dots in a way to say, this is indeed a global war against Islam and Muslims. And then he said, how do you think you can stop this war? What Muslims need is their own state to protect themselves. How did Islam even get to Bosnia in the first place, if not for the Ottoman Caliphate? Where is that Ottoman Caliphate? Well, it was demolished in 1924. Now, to protect Muslims, we need to, to resurrect that caliphate. This is a very simplistic and black and white worldview. There is no global war against Islam and Muslims. There are multiple wars across the world, mainly for geopolitical reasons, driven by socioeconomic uh, geopolitical tensions. But this simplistic black and white worldview suited a young, angry 16-year-old teenager who was faced with very black and white problems with a genocide across the continent and who was being hunted in, uh, on the streets of his own hometown. And so at the age of 16, I adopted this simplistic black and white Islamist narrative. And I joined a group known as Hizb al-Tahrir, which was founded in 1953 in Jerusalem and spread across the world from there. It is a, uh, uh, an extreme Islamist group, but it's not a terrorist group, which, which is why it's still legal in the United States and across Europe. The difference being, like racism, you can either be a, a racist or a violent racist. You can be an Islamist or a violent Islamist. Um, and for the purposes of my definitions, what I mean by Islamism is the desire to impose any version of my religion, Islam, over the rest of society. When that desire becomes violent, I call it jihadism. So I joined this group, this Islamist group, at the age of 16. Our mission statement was to popularize the notion that Muslims must resurrect this caliphate. In fact, this was the first group that this group is responsible for popularizing the notion of resurrecting a caliphate. It is the group that seeded from its offshoots all of the jihadist groups. They have invariably a link back to the group that I joined uh, at the age of 16. Now, my journey continued from there. I moved to London. I joined a college, and I began recruiting on behalf of this organization. Uh, soon, I was elected as president of the student union in this college, and my entire student union committee were fellow activists in this cause. And we, we began radicalizing young Muslim students on the campus. In 1994, in East London, one of my followers was not officially a member of my group and who took action into his own hands. His name was Said Noor, ended up murdering a non-Muslim student on my campus in London and in what was perhaps London's first jihadist street murder. But it caught the entire country unawares. They had no idea what Islamism was back in those days. So they put this down to a, a, a gang crime incident. This man was uh, given life in prison. He's still serving his sentence. I was uh, obviously not held in, in any way responsible for, for the murder, but the college, rightly so, expelled me from the campus because they didn't want my troublemaking on that campus. They believed my presence was not conducive to a peaceful, peaceful atmosphere among students, and they were correct. But undeterred, I continued my activities. In 1998, Pakistan tested, tested its atomic bomb. The global leadership of this organization sent a message to the British Pakistani members, urging them to go to Pakistan to found this organization there. Because if the aim was to resurrect a caliphate, why not have a nuclear caliphate? So in the year 1999, I took a year, a year leave of absence from uh, London's School of Oriental and African Studies, uh, part of the University of London. And I went to Pakistan for the first time in my life, uh, learned Urdu within the year, and laid the seeds for uh, the foundations of that organization in Pakistan. 
since 1999 until uh, today, there have been four, roughly four attempted military coup uh, 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 plots by this organization. Some of them have been uh, reported in the press because the means of coming to power um, uh, for Hezbo Tahrir, my former group, was via uh, infiltrating the armies of Muslim-majority countries and inciting military coups. It's what differentiates them from Al-Qaeda, who believe in merely killing people uh, in, in acts of terrorism. So after my job was done in Pakistan, I returned to London to complete my studies, and then uh, was requested to go to Denmark. So on, uh, during the weekdays, I would study at the University of London, and on, on the weekends, I would fly every weekend to Copenhagen to found the Danish-Pakistani chapter of this organization uh, as well. Eventually, in the year 2001, one day before the 9-11 attacks, I arrived in Egypt. Um, my activities continued in Egypt. I uh, attempted to recruit other people in the city of Alexandria to, uh, to my cause and to this organization. What I hadn't realized is that the security climate around the world would uh, trust, drastically change after 9-11. I think as uh, Tony Blair or somebody said in those days, the rules of the game have changed. So my activities finally caught up with me in Egypt uh, when because of the fact that the rules of the game indeed did change, on the 1st of April in 2002, uh, the Egyptian state security forces raided my Alexandria flat, blindfolded me, tied my hands uh, behind my back, prized my uh, baby son who was one at the time, uh, away from my arms, put me in the back of this van, and took me to the dungeons that we began this story with. Now, in those torture dungeons, we were held uh, for four days, and we were numbered. Now, keep in mind, this is before the Arab uprisings. Most Arab countries, uh, this is before the invasion of Iraq, most Arab countries had dictators as brutal as Saddam Hussein um, and uh, Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafiz al-Assad, and Mubarak uh, in Egypt, and Gaddafi in Libya. It was the age of those dictators. So what we witnessed in the torture dungeons um, was truly uh, something which was very common across the Arab world. We were numbered. Uh, the numbers went into their hundreds. My number was 42. And from day one, the state security officers began a roll call in chronological order through these numbers. So number one would be called and frog marched to their interrogation uh, cell. And then number one would be stripped, uh, held to the floor, and have electricity applied uh, to his teeth and genitalia. And then we would have to hear the screams of number one as he was interrogated. Then number two was called, and the same thing would happen. And then number three was called, and number four was called. And so by the time it got to my number, 42, there were 41 people who had gone before me who had been tortured by electrocution. For reasons I cannot explain till this day, when my number was called, and I was marched, as, as you heard me read from my book, I was marched to the interrogation cell, I was instead threatened with rape, and I wasn't electrocuted. What they did is they brought a fellow British citizen who was one of uh, my fellow activists from this group in front of me, and they tortured him and asked me questions off the back of his answers and vice versa. Then they gave me 12 hours, and they said to me, don't think we can't do the same to you. You two are British. We, don't, we have no fear of these things anymore. They returned me to my place, and within the next 12 hours, which is four days too late, the British uh, embassy finally tracked us down and had us removed, removed from these uh, torture, uh, torture dungeons and into solitary confinement in a prison known as Mazra'a Tora in Cairo. We were then held for four months in, this, uh, uh, in, in solitary confinement until eventually we were charged with propagating the ideas of a banned organization and the trial that lasted two years led to a five-year uh, sentence. 
Now, I want to pause a bit about on, on, this, on this period in prison, because it, for me, it was definitive. It was, a, it was a, a, a pivotal moment in my own thinking. And I could have gone two ways. During those four months in solitary confinement, I convinced myself that I would take it to the next level and join a jihadist organization to seek revenge against the Egyptian, my Egyptian interrogators and the Egyptian state. Solitary confinement can do many strange things to one's mind. Um, and it's not especially helpful if you're trying not to have violent thoughts. But what I did in the end is I checked myself. And I thought I had a lot of time to think. And I thought, where have I come from and where have I got to? And is this the right way to go? When I was released from solitary, I thought I need to give life one more chance. And so I began uh, in probably what was the best education I've had in my life. And no offense to the London School of Economics or SOAS. But it was probably the best education I've had in my life. Imagine George Orwell's animal farm, but instead of the communists running the farm, you had the jihadists. You know, uh, if there are any fiction publishers here, by the way, that's a pitch for my next book. Um, I lived among the who's who, uh, the golden hall of fame of, of jihadists. As you heard in the introduction, the assassins of the former president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, who was killed in 1981, those who weren't executed in that case were given life sentences, and they were with me in Mazrat Ora prison. I also had the leaders of Egypt's then largest terrorist group, Gamal al-Islamiyah, who were with me in this very prison. The leaders of my group, Hizb al-Tahrir, with me in this prison. The leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, eventually the group that came to power in Egypt. Um, their, 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 their leadership, their president, their, their main spokesperson, all of them, their senior leadership were with me in this prison. Dr. Mohammed Badia, who's still their leader and has since been re-imprisoned. And I also had uh, Saad al-Din Ibrahim, a well-known uh, Egyptian-American academic who was imprisoned by Mubarak uh, for his liberal views with me in this prison, became uh, a friend of mine. I also had the leader of another Egyptian liberal political party known as Hezb al-Ghadd, Ayman Noor, who was with me in this prison. There were also homosexuals who had been convicted for the uh, alleged crime of hom homosexuality in the infamous Queen's Boat case who were also with me in this prison. There were Muslims who had converted to Christianity and Christians who had converted to Islam with me in this prison. You know, what we had a joke in those days that in Egypt, under Hosni Mubarak, anyone who changes his mind from anything to anything will be thrown into prison. <laughs> and that's exactly what it was like. We had um, uh, the, the assassins of Sadat there in Mazrat or a prison with the public prosecutor who had risen to become the governor of Giza um, who had sentenced all of them to death or life imprisonment, who ended up himself in that same prison, facing the assassins of Sadat. And his uh, crime, I won't say alleged, his crime was corruption and bribery. He obviously fell out with Hosni Mubarak. So I paint this picture for you, and I say the jihadist version of Animal Farm, because imagine the conversations that we were having for the course of those four years. Now, I don't want to mislead you. It certainly wasn't a pleasant experience to be in prison. But for my, uh, for my own thinking and how it evolved, those conversations were critical. I immediately launched into the debates with the jihadists, with the liberals, um, with, the, with those accused of homosexuality, with the ex-Muslims, with, uh, with the Christians who'd converted to Islam, with the public prosecutor who'd sent them all to their deaths, um, with, with the liberals such as uh, uh, Saad al-Din Ibrahim and others. And I spent those next four years enriching my mind, studying uh, my, my religion from the original sources of Arabic, um, and, and studying uh, English literature uh, and, and English political uh, theory, uh, uh, reading Tolkien over and again, reading all seven Harry Potter books um, inside my cell, and I really spent the time trying to understand the world. When I completed my sentence and I was released, 
two things uh, that I'd left behind me in prison had a profound impact on me. One was upon conviction, Amnesty International took the bold and brave decision to adopt us as prisoners of conscience on the principle uh, that they didn't agree with what we said, but because we weren't terrorists, we had every right to say it, and that we certainly didn't deserve torture for it. That was my first interaction with human rights, because everything I've told you up until this point takes you from between me being the age of 16 to the age of 24. And within that short period of life, the only thing I'd experienced was violence and more violence. When Amnesty came along and began campaigning for my release, it had an impact on my heart. It was the first time people I'd considered my enemy, I'd been conditioned to consider my enemy, were reaching out to me and saying, we will defend your right to speak, though we disagree with everything you say. And I became very personal friends with some of the Amnesty campaigners who were helping uh, to campaign for our release. It yeah, didn't have the impact they desired. We had to complete our sentence, but it had an impact on me. And the second thing that influenced me were the debates and the discussions and the reading that I did. So by the time I was released from prison in 2006 and I returned to London on the 1st of March in 2006, um, I could no longer justify propagating what I now believe to be a theocratic fascist ideology in the name of my religion. So I waited 10 months in an attempt to reconcile, because this was, you know, if, if joining a radical organization is an identity crisis, this was a re-identity crisis. Um, I no longer knew who I was. So within the course of those 10 months, I had to reconcile a relationship with a wife who, for all I know, is still a member of that group. She certainly was when I, when I was released from prison, um, who clearly didn't end up with the husband that she married, um, who now believed that this ideology that I call the Islamist ideology is part of the problem, not part of the solution. And I had to reconcile, on the one hand, my personal life. On the other hand, my entire social circle um, had become consumed by this ideology and by this group and my conscience. I had always been somebody who was driven by a sense of justice. And it's perhaps a flaw in my personality that I'm a campaigner. I cannot remain silent. And I joined this organization in the first place because of a deep sense of injustice. But I now realize that we had become the Nietzschean beast that we were attempting to defeat. And that that beast needed to be put back in its cage. Because I predicted back in 2007 when I left the group formally announced on BBC Newsnight, I predicted that if this caliphate were ever to come to fruition, it would be hell on earth. We were having conversations in prison with the jihadists about how they dream of enslaving women. And I said that, a bit like Animal Farm, if the pigs ever walk on hind legs and tell everyone else that they're not as equal as them, it will be hell on earth. So I dedicated my energies from 2007 onwards to challenge the very notion in principle that a theocratic caliphate can ever be a solution to anything in today's complex world. And in that vein, uh, helped to set up Quilliam in 2008, became its founding chairman, um, and, and, and continued to work uh, it, from an organization that was founded by former Islamists to begin the civil society pushback against what I call the Islamist ideology in all of its forms. I think I said in one of the panels yesterday, you, you here don't need to thank me for saying uh, ISIS is wrong, uh, you don't deserve to be killed. How low the bar has sunk that the Muslim savage is applauded when he says, I don't want to kill you. That shouldn't be the expectation. But sadly, that's how low our bar has sunk that we look, we look to Syria with optimism when Al-Qaeda is defeating ISIS. We've got to a situation where this ideology has got out of hand and out of control. 
where moderate no longer means anything, because on a relative scale, Al-Qaeda appear moderate to ISIS. And we've forgotten what the true cause of the problem is, which is the rise of this theocratic fascist ideology. Of course, the problem is complex. And as in my own story, we see there are grievances, there's an identity crisis. You know, there are all sorts of complex geopolitical reasons. But what we cannot do is continue to ignore the role that this theocratic fascist ideology is playing. And as has, done, as has been done with racism, as has been done with homophobia, within one generation, you know, if you said to me when I was 15 years old, facing this racism on the streets of Essex, if you'd said to me that within your own lifetime, Majid, the President of the United States would be African-American and a conservative Prime Minister in the UK would legalize gay marriage, and one of the most well-known rappers, in fact, would be white. <laughs> and I'm not referring to Vanilla Ice. I would have laughed you out of the room. But that's how the world has changed on both the racism and homophobia debates. And what's changed it isn't the blunt tools of law and war. What's changed it is a civil society pushback. People have woken up to the dangers of racism, the dangers of homophobia. Unfortunately, because of our desire, our history, in fact, to be uh, polite to minority communities, we are uncomfortable waking up to the fact that within minority communities in the West, a fascism can still breed. And the victims, the first victims of this fascism, I call them the minorities within the minorities, who are the first victims, who, are, who should be the first recipients of our concern and empathy. Every gay Muslim, every feminist Muslim, every liberal Muslim, every dissenting Muslim voice and ex-Muslim, who ISIS throw off the top of buildings, or stoned to death, burying them head deep in the sand and, 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 and ch chucking rocks at their heads to kill them alive by stoning them to death in that way. These are the victims, the minorities within the minority communities that we should really be concerned about because they are the first ones to fall when uh, in the face of this, the rise of this theocratic fascism. Now, we need to do the same thing to this ideology as was done with racism and homophobia without being scared of being called racist or somehow intolerant of minority communities. And that is the mission statement of Quilliam, of my work. It's to render the Islamist ideology as unattractive, as unappealing as Soviet communism has become today. But to do that, all of us have to stand together. We have to isolate the Islamist ideology from Islam, identify it, not be scared to name it, and then challenge it head on. Yes, there's a role for strikes. Yes, there's a role for military. I don't discount their role. They are heroes. But the long-term solution in this 30-year or so struggle, it's a generational struggle, is going to require civil society to challenge this ideology and to reassert small-l, classically liberal, democratic values in the face of this uh, rising uh, theocratic fascism. And I'll stop there because I've been told there's 20 minutes, which is a good time to hear your questions, criticisms, comments, and reaction. Thank you. Uh, Maggie, we've met, and, and I just want to say something to, to the room. I, I read Maggie's book when I was in Paris, and I picked it up, and, I, and uh, Jan remembers I was reading it with a flashlight underneath the covers because I couldn't put it down. So I, I urge all of you, you've heard a story in the last half hour, read the book. It's amazing. Maggie, here's my question. Thank I you. I didn't know you were going to say that. That's not why I did. That's right. But, uh, Magic, can we bring this home? Can we bring this to, the United, to North America, from Canada, from the United States, to the United States and Canada, and be more specific with regard to what your views are 
what you're trying to do in Europe and in England and how you would think that should apply here in the United States and Canada? So in, in the UK, I think the focus will be on domestic politics. In the US, uh, forgive me if I'm mistaken, but I think there's a serious um, need for focus on foreign policy. And I'll take one at a time very briefly, though, because I know there's a lot of other questions as well. But what we're trying to do in the UK and across Europe is end what, what unfortunately, what's happened is that these communities have grown together apart. It's entirely possible in 2015 in London to be third-generation British Pakistani Muslim, born and raised in the country to parents, born and raised in the country, and be a teenager and not have a single non-Muslim friend and not have a single female friend if you're male and vice versa. That type of isolation that was originally uh, uh, imagined in the name of multiculturalism, now I don't want to, I, I'm a liberal uh, politically, I don't want to attack multiculturalism as a doctrine. What I would attack is if it was meant to achieve this, it was wrong. I don't think that was its intention, to continue self-segregation and isolation. Now, that type of isolation, I know this, by the way, because I, I personally know people in this situation. Born and raised third generation without a single non-Muslim friend and a single friend from the other uh, opposite sex. That cannot be good for integration. It cannot be good for community cohesion. And they are uh, easy pickings for ISIS. And when we have 1,000 uh, British citizens who've gone to join the worst terrorist group history has ever known, you know that doesn't just happen in a vacuum. That has to have emerged from a milieu. And it's that milieu that we're seeking to challenge. We want to end the self-segregated communities. We want to assert small L liberal values among those communities. We want to help integrate them. We want to help mix them. Because, of fact, frankly, you know, there's been, as of last December, there's been a 20% rise in the general population of prison in the United Kingdom. And there's been a 120% rise of Muslim prisoners in the United Kingdom. Not for terrorism offenses, for crime. So the first victims of this self-segregation and isolation happen to be those very communities in the name of uh, multiculturalism when they've been segregated into these, uh, uh, into these um, uh, areas that are known as Muslim areas, whether it's Dewsbury, whether it's Berry Park in Luton, whether it's Tower Hamlets in London. Um, no wonder that they have the highest unemployment rates, uh, the, the highest prison rates, the lowest uh, uh, social mobility rates in the UK. So we want to end all of that. And that requires serious government policy and a culture change within the country. But we have to have these conversations. In the US, I've often accused President Obama, again, you know, I hope you could take this in, 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 the, in the good faith that it's intended. Um, uh, and I speak as a Liberal Democrat parliamentary candidate who just lost an election. Uh, so I, but I often accuse my fellow liberals here of the Voldemort effect. Um, you know, the, the, the evil bad guy in the Harry Potter books, he who must not be named. We're so scared of this, we cannot even name it. And, and when President Obama says this has got nothing to do with Islam, or when he says the evil or extremist ideology and doesn't actually name the problem, I don't think that helps the reformist voices within Muslim communities because it deprives them of a lexicon with which to address this issue. And actually, um, when we say this has nothing to do with Islam, it's, frankly, it's untrue. It, ISIS are not Islam per se, but we have to acknowledge they have something to do with a trajectory within Islamic discourse. Something, surely, to do with it. Something. It's a bit like arguing the Catholic Inquisition had nothing to do with Catholicism. You know, it's a very strange position to take. So I think both on foreign policy here, we need a strategy. And in the UK and, the U and Europe generally, there needs to be a focus on domestic issues. But there's a lot more to say, but there's lots of other questions. Um, yes, let's take this lady here in the, in the lovely colored top. Yes. Uh, two quick questions. Um, one on the storyline. Take me to the moment where you hear that there has been a terror attack, that your friend has indeed killed a white student. What did you think then? 
truly and genuinely? And why do you think you didn't go along in the path of violence? And the second question is, are you threatened? Are you within the Muslim community a threat to the Islamists? And if so, how do you deal with that? So the second question is easier to answer, yes. And, 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 and what I say and how I speak, and I, I've always been very frank, and I think part of a character flaw is, is my desire to be very candid led me to, be, to join an Islamist group in the first place, because when I become convinced of something, I, I act on it. And that may not necessarily be a good character trait, but it's how I am. And, and so I, within Muslim communities, I'm very candid about the, the challenges. And if anyone saw on the panel yesterday, again, you know, I defended Ayan Hirsi Ali and her book from a position of being a Muslim, because we have to have this conversation. And you know what? In having this conversation, we're going to get it wrong sometimes. But because we haven't been speaking about it, of course we're going to make mistakes. The only way to overcome that is to carry the conversation on, not to vilify people that are attempting sincerely to help bring change. So I encourage people like Ayan to continue saying that what they're saying. But that doesn't make me very popular within Muslim communities, because what I should be saying is, you know, forgive the caricature, but I should be the angry Muslim by now. Because you know this narrative of grievances, I don't think there is another person that's experienced. I mean, I check all the grievance checklist that you could ever imagine. You know, racism, torture, uh, whatever. It's, it, I've been through it all. But I'm not now at the end of that, the angry Muslim who's basically ranting about people like Ayan and ex-Muslims. And that kind of upsets some people. But I think, you know, we have to have this conversation. So yes, there is a serious issue there, but I'm very optimistic. I see change even within the eight years I've been doing this. Um, on your first question, I'm very sorry to say that back then when I was 17 and very angry, I had become hardened and uh, uh, lacking, in, lacking in any empathy to, to the other because I'd, become to, I'd identified so much with the in-group that I had adopted that for me, the out-group was necessary to keep, keep as the out-group, to keep them as, as the excluded other, almost dehumanized. I had absolutely zero empathy, and that's very sad. And, you know, I often think about how a human being can how I could have ended up in that situation. But that's a, a question for, for psychologists, I imagine. And he wasn't white, by the way. He was an African-origin Christian British student. And, and it's, it's probably befitting to name him the man who lost his life, Ayatunde Obonobe. Hi. Uh, I get very confused about what the role of non-Muslims should be with respect to all of these issues. Uh, specifically, the panel yesterday, there was an Islamist who spoke uh, about the fact that what if we're not all liberal? and the need of non-Muslims to respect the right of Muslims to have a different way of life and to want a different way of life that could particularly present itself geopolitically in the Middle East. How do we respond to that? How do we respect those rights and at the same time engage those that are terrorists and um, are violent and threaten us? And what should the role of Muslims who are nonviolent be with respect to these issues as well. Mm. How do we all engage ourselves with respect? On the first half of your question about what is the role of non-Muslims, in, in exactly the same way with the racism debate and the homophobia debate, people didn't need to be African-Americans to challenge racism and segregation, and you don't need to be Jewish to challenge anti-Semitism, and you don't need to be gay to challenge homophobia. Likewise, with the, uh, the rise of theocratic fascism, you know, everyone has a role here, whether it's uh, media, whether it's politicians, whether it's military personnel. You know, I regularly advise at SOCOM and others about some of the strategies they can deploy to deal with some of this. But I also advise politicians and media. But I think when, when it's a civil society struggle, there needs to be a full spectrum response. Because what we're dealing with isn't the rise of Al-Qaeda-inspired extremism. This, again, was an Obama administration term they've been very critical of. Al-Qaeda didn't inspire extremism. Extremism inspired Al-Qaeda. It's important for us to remember that, that there's an entire extremist ideology prior to Al-Qaeda. Its latest manifestation isn't even Al-Qaeda, it's ISIS. 
Uh, before that, there was Hizbut Tahrir, before that, the Muslim Brotherhood. But all of us have a role in, in, in challenging uh, these ideas. And of course, we must also challenge Islamophobia or anti-Muslim hatred, to be more precise, because it's not Islamophobic to criticize a religion. It's not, as, it's, as it's done with, with Judaism and Christianity, which are, which are mocked and satirized regularly, the Book of Mormon and plays such as that satirize even the Mormons, why can't Islam be satirized in that way? That's, that's artistic license. Anti-Muslim hatred is, is targeted hatred. That, that is a concern. But I, I would argue that that concern has to be balanced with the rise of this theocratic fascist ideology. And finally, on this point that um, uh, all Muslims may not want to be liberal, you know, I think it's sophistry. Um, I disagree with my friend and dear polite, polite uh, colleague, Shadi Hamidi. He's polite. He probably wouldn't use the word sophist sophistry to describe me. Um, but I, unfortunately, I told him this. I don't agree. And I think it conflates two things. It conflates the legal right to be, uh, to, to say things that, that are problematic with the civil society response to what that legal right is. And uh, let me explain that. President Bush was legally president of the United States. That doesn't mean I agree with his invasion of Iraq. Just because he's the democratically elected president, that doesn't mean I, I now capitulate in the face of that debate. Civil society will challenge the legitimate democratically elected president. Likewise in Egypt, when the Muslim Brotherhood came to power, yes, to answer his question, yes, okay, they are legally the elected government of that country when they were, before they were overthrown. But that doesn't mean we stay quiet and, not, and don't challenge some of their more absurd notions, such as women can't be presidents. You know, so I call that doctrine, I presented it at the US Senate in 2007, I call it legal tolerance, fair enough, and civic intolerance of intolerance. Sorry for the kind of wordplay, but yeah. You uh, use the word politeness, and I'd like to hear you expand a little more on why political correctness is keeping us from being more effective in dealing with this threat, because that, there seemed to be more that you had to say on that subject. Yes, I, I, I will take some more questions and then try and sum, sum them all up together. A lady at the front here, and then we'll take the gentleman right in the, in the corner as well. I'm going to write these down. I'm taking notes. How, I'm not how does Sharia law fit in your concept of uh, discrimination against women? And how should the, the Arab, you know, and the, the, the Muslims that are against discrimination deal with that? Yeah, thank you. And the gentleman is right in the corner over there. I'm Erel Shalit, and I want to thank you for your impressive courage and what you're doing. Thank you. The incredible work that you seem to be doing. I would like to ask you, uh, one of the uh, beautiful sides of Europe is its conventional uh, liberal outlook, reaching out to the other uh, without, in efforts at not being prejudiced. How do you help some of the well-meaning European liberals to differentiate between the other and not indiscriminately accept the other and therefore fearing mentioning the troubles that may, res may reside in the other. Thank you. Is there one last question from this side? Somebody, yes? Hi. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit more about the, um, the dynamic of youth recruitment because you said that you were radicalized when you were 16. There were a lot of news reports of ISIS disproportionately drawing from, uh, you know, teenagers and like there was talk yesterday of the millennial mind as the battlefield I'm wondering if it's as simple as young people lack impulse control or if there's something else going on there thank you I'll try and take these questions together and I think then we're out of time
I've just made the notes of them all, so I remember them. Uh, and I'm going to merge the question on political correctness with the question on liberalism. Um, I've written a paper which you can find if you Google just my name and on blasphemy. I kind of ripped John Stuart Mill on liberty and called it on blasphemy. But it's, it's an attempt uh, by me as a Muslim to address the importance of blaspheming and why it's such an important uh, 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 right for people uh, to, uh, to be allowed to engage in without reprisal. Um, you had a shooting here in, I think, in Texas when, uh, well, who I consider a quite a dodgy, uh, her views at least, quite dodgy, Pam Geller, um, they had a cartoon thing, uh, you know, cartoons of Muhammad. And I tweeted immediately my reaction that, you know, um, even bigots have the right to speak without being shot at. And that's my stance on this. Um, you know, I, I, I absolutely have uh, been actually very critical and in, in, in fact responded to, uh, a year prior to Charlie Hebdo, responded to some of the calls within the UK to shut down this type of debate by retweeting a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad myself. Didn't make me very popular, it led to multiple death threats. But I did it as a Muslim, and it wasn't offensive, uh, the image for me. It was a, an image of Jesus saying hello to an image of Muhammad saying, how are you doing? Um, and that led to death threats. And I tweeted that with the caption, Allahu Akbar minhu, which means God is greater than to take offense at this. Um, so th there are bigots who use this type of thing for their own reasons. Um, and I don't want to make it about people and personalities. But still, they have the right to do so without being shot at. Now, that's what my paper on blasphemy addresses. Uh, you can find it online. But the reason why that's so important is I believe that we would not be here if not for Galileo's blasphemy, if not for Darwin's blasphemy, if not for Jesus' blaspheming against the old temple, if not for Muhammad's blaspheming against the idols of his society and Moses' blaspheming against the gods of the Pharaoh. All of that leads to human history to the point where it is today. And so blasphemy is, is crucial. And the reason I mentioned blasphemy in response to your question is they're actually the first victim of the politically cor correct approach to this conversation. What we don't realize is that there are minorities within minority communities uh, who merely by being are considered blasphemers and are killed. Uh, what I mean merely by being, the way in which ISIS throws gay Muslims off cliffs or stones women just because they're having relations prior to marriage, these are the sorts of minorities within minorities who our desire not to be impolite by defending is betraying and sailing down the river. And if any society is to be judged by how it treats its minorities, I add to that that no. Society, modern society, is to be judged by how it treats its minorities within its minorities. And the, the hot knife that cuts through the butter in that debate is liberalism. For me, uh, for so long in Europe, uh, the approach, uh, again, not to dismiss multiculturalism, it has many theories, you know. Um, but the approach, the interpretation of multiculturalism that has been adopted in Europe, um, that favors uh, group rights, so long as there's a legal right to exit from the community, people have considered that that culture should be left alone. Well, what is a legal right to exit from a community if you've already been subjected to FGM at the age of two? Or what is a legal right to exit a community and join the mainstream if the effect of cultural shaming known as slut-shaming or, or the taboos around females asserting their own independence leads to uh, 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 honor killings or, or, or leads to male suicide. Uh, you know, there have been uh, gay Muslims in the constituency where I ran for, uh, to be an MP in the United Kingdom. A gay Muslim killed himself because he was forcibly outed by his family. You know, um, th these are the sorts of stories that I think should move us as liberals, small-l liberals, who care about minority rights. Um, there is a, a possibility that minority communities can become incredibly liberal. In the United States, you've experienced that with the rise of the Nation of Islam and, and militant black nationalism within the civil rights movement. 
I don't think that was helpful. And, and Martin Luther King uh, was never a part of that. So, you know, to give you that analogy, it's important to recognize the difference within these movements within minority communities. I must move on very quickly because I think we're out of time. Um, Sharia is a, uh, is a fluid body. Uh, I, the, the, there is no, in Arabic, the word Sharia law is never used in that way. Sharia is never an adjective to describe the noun law in Arabic. Um, Sharia is a noun in Arabic. Um, part of the fact that we've adopted this notion that it is a law is the set down to the success of Islamist campaigning. Uh, I don't think Sharia is a law, nor should it ever be a law, um, and it needs reform. And I've got a book coming out with Sam Harris, U.S. neo-atheist, uh, this autumn, or this fall, as you say here, about the possibility of whether Islam can indeed be reformed or not. And finally, factors of radicalization. I'll end by just giving you four points. Uh, we, we've run out of time. Uh, and that is that actually youth radicalization involves four factors. Uh, a sense of grievance, whether real or perceived, an identity crisis uh, that emerges from that sense of grievance, a charismatic recruiter that provides a sense of belonging, and an ideological narrative that provides the mission or the cause. I hope that kind of, that's a succinct way of answering your question. Now, I'll be over there signing books, so don't stop me until I get over there. Thank you. That was Majid Nawaz, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 3rd, 2015. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.